Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keen, and I'm talking to Todd Kiesling tonight, author of uh, The Final Reconciliation, the short story collection, Ugly Little Things, and what would you call it, a noveletta chapbook from Dim Shores called uh, The Smile Factory? Uh, no, The Smile Factory is a novelette from Precipice Books. Oh, Precipice. Yeah. I don't know where yeah, I got it. We'll get to Dim Shores in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do know that you have something from Dim Shores. I assumed that one was, too, because uh, my memory sucks. We talked about that. It's all good. So, uh, you, but you do have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Um, I have some of it sitting here in my queue on my Kindle right now waiting for me to read. Nice. Um, so, uh, you want to tell Tell us just a little bit about yourself before we get rolling, and then we'll start talking about some of that stuff. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start there. Um, no, I I write really you know dark stuff, uh, horror fiction, weird fiction. Uh, once upon a time, you call it speculative fiction. I don't know if that's really a term that's used anymore. Um. I still use it, but I'm an old fucker, so... That's okay. Uh, I'm right on the cusp of being an old fucker, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I write, you know, short fiction. Uh, I, I've written several novels, uh, working on my next book right now, about halfway through it. Um, I've been writing since, well... Pretty much my whole life. Uh, my first publication was when I was five years old. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, I drew like a, a picture and wrote a four-sentence story to go with it when I was in kindergarten, and it got published in my town newspaper. <laughs> I still have it. It's uh, it's quite something. It's all oh, yeah. like phonetics and stuff. <laughs> that would be uh, – but that – still a major point of nostalgia it'd be impossible to get rid of it yeah uh it hung on my great-grandmother's wall in a frame for years um <laughs> so yeah i've you know i've dabbled in all sorts of different you know types of fiction uh really kept going back to horror over the years um i grew up with horror uh my mom read stephen king and dean Koontz, so i had a household full of those books available to me uh i've been watching horror films since i was a little kid um it's just it's in my blood and uh it's something i always gravitate toward for whatever weird ass reason yeah, I think it's just something that you're either that personality type or you're not that personality type. It's kind of like, yeah, I've I've had mostly the same upbringing. I was surrounded by Kuntz and King and Barker and Straub, and um, it's just out of everything I read, that's what I gravitate toward mo most. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it takes a, a I think, a, a more normal than average personality to be a major horror fanatic like we are. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody else is fucking weird. Exactly. <laughs> Get with the fucking program. <laughs> so, um... So that answered that question. I was going to ask you why horror, but we pretty much just covered that right there. Why um, not? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Pennsylvania, huh? I am. Okay. Okay. I had had it in my head that you were New York City, but Rich told me Pennsylvania because he said, ask him why there are so many fucking authors in Pennsylvania. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Kelly Owen refers to it as like a writer's commune <laughs> because we're all like, like I live uh, the opposite side of town from Summer Cannon and, uh, Bob Ford and Kelly. Now I know they just moved, but uh, they live about an hour and a half away from me. Uh, you know, Kenneth Kane is about forty-five minutes away. Uh, J.C. Walsh is in Philly. Um, you got, you know, Stephanie Witovich and uh, Gwendolyn Keist out toward Pittsburgh. I think it's I think it's pronounced Keist. Could be Keist. I don't know. Sorry, Gwendolyn, if you're listening to this. If I got it wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to give you sole provenance on fucking that one up and I'm just let you say it. <laughs> uh, you know, plus you got, you know, Brian Keene and, uh, you know, Mary San Giovanni, uh, here as well. And I'm sure I'm leaving out like a, you know, a million other people. Oh, Anthony J. Rapino is up in the Poconos. Um, so yeah, it's so just no- like this. We're kind of scattered all over the place. And not, and you're not talking about a bunch of hacks either. You're talking about some really, really talented uh, artists in that group of people. Um, I can't think of a single one of those people that I've read that was anything less than stellar. So Pennsylvania seems to be a breeding ground. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know... You know, I can't speak for the the ladies on on the western side of the state, but I mean, like, I'm not from here. Brian Keane's not from here. Uh, I don't think Mary's from here. Summer's not from here. <laughs> you know, uh, Tony Tony is not from here. It's huh, crazy. Like, we've all just kind of somehow gravitated toward this place. Maybe you know, maybe there's something in the in the ground. Who knows? The atmosphere, or the mood, or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's just that it was. Rich and I talk about that all the time. It's like every time, every other author, you say, "Where are you from?" Oh, Pennsylvania. Ah, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just about change that question to, "So are you from Pennsylvania or somewhere else?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of got a, a pedigree, though. I mean, you've got you know George Romero out in Pittsburgh. I mean, that alone, I mean, you've had some of the most, the one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War was fought here. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, there's all sorts of history here. And, you know, no matter which side of the horror spectrum you approach it from, there's, there's going to be something for everybody. Uh, I really didn't start digging into that till after I moved here. Now, I've lived here in PA since uh, 2005, so this will be year number 15 for me. Uh-uh. And, you know, it's I didn't get a lot of this stuff when I was uh, growing up in Kentucky. It, you know, it's it's kind of like once I moved here, I realized I was among my people. <laughs> That's interesting, too. You don't have a trace of an accent now. It comes out from time to time, yeah. especially when I'm when I'm tired or when I'm drunk. <laughs> That's uh <laughs> My friend Terry's from South Carolina, and you, but you can't tell because he's been away for so long. Except when he's drinking, you can't tell he's ever been away from there. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, whenever uh, we go down south to visit my family, my wife always ends up p- carrying back the accent, and she's lived in PA her whole life. It's kind of funny that way. Uh, it's, it's, it's also a- really funny to go back to my hometown in Kentucky and have like the locals tell me that I talk funny. <laughs> in your own hometown, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. What, an, what a trip that would be. <laughs> but yeah. it's, an, it's, an, it's an infectious uh, accent, those southern accents of all types. Um, anytime I've ever, like even hanging out with a bunch of friends I have from the south, I'll walk away from long gatherings or weekends or things like that with a little bit of a little bit of a drawl going on there that isn't natural to me, you know? Yeah, it's kind of a, a lazy sort of language. I mean, you tend to drop some vowels, you drop some syllables. It's more laid back, and depending on what parts of the South you go to, it can be an entirely different language altogether. <laughs> um, yeah, that's like uh, some Irish people I know, although uh-huh. basically they are actually speaking an entirely different language. But Yeah. One that I never picked up, never uh, it goes back to that lazy thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> One more thing to learn I didn't need. <laughs> so you just recently started working with a new-to-you publisher who's fairly new to us. We talk about them, it seems like, every single show now because they're noteworthy. Um, and that is uh, Silver Shamrock. Do you want to talk about that experience and what you're doing with those guys? Uh, yeah, so Silver Shamrock, uh, I had heard about them in my uh, the HWA chapter that I would uh, go to. I had heard rumblings about this anthology that was being put together, uh, which eventually became Midnight in the Graveyard. And, you know, I kept hearing this name, Ken McKinley, Ken McKinley, left and, you know, left and right. And um, I'm like, you know, that name sounds so familiar. And lo and behold, he was the guy who runs the horror aficionados group on Goodreads. And they had done a group read of The Final Reconciliation when that came out through Crystal Lake uh, 2017 now. Um, So it was kind of, I don't know, it's like when we finally approached him and pitched Devil's Creek uh it was kind of once that kind of came full it, like it came full circle in a way so it was kind of meant to be because you know i had gotten along with him pretty well when we did the the group read for final wreck all those years ago and um i, I have nothing bad to say uh, about silver shamrock and i'm not saying that because i've got a book coming out with them uh it's been an incredibly professional experience working with them it's been you know if there was something that i wanted done for the book or wanted to take a different approach ken was all ears he was working he worked with me he's worked with my agent and i don't know it feels like we we've had this really good you know working relationship and he you know, he shares my vision for the book. He, uh, I guess I should mention that, uh, <laughs> the book itself. Um, so my novel, Devil's Creek, 
is coming out through Silver Shamrock uh, in June of this year, uh, June 16th. It is a uh, small-town cosmic horror novel uh, in the same vein as, say, Salem's Lot meets Lovecraft or Ted Klein or Laird Barron, for that matter. Uh, Yeah, and you just knocked everything else off my TBR. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say it's got it's it's got more in it's got more uh, in relation to Lovecraft and Ted Klein, uh, the ceremony specifically. Then uh, Laird's work, uh, nothing. It's not a knock against Laird at all. Laird's a, a friend of mine, a, a huge inspiration to me. He's one of my all-time favorites. Um, but you know, it's it it's this giant, massive tumor of a book. It, it's just <laughs> it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger when I was working on it. I knew we were going to have a hard time placing it because of the size and also you know it was pitched to several publishers and they all wanted me to cut it down and i acquiesced in some places i i ended up cutting about thirty thousand words out of it that's roughly 100 pages um they might surface sometime in the future you know distant future but for now it's it's still a pretty long book i mean it's 140 46 thousand words yeah, so it's still a pretty big book, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I it was important to me to find a publisher that understood where I was coming from with that because I grew up with all those, you know, small-town novels. Uh, you know, Salem's Lot was and is currently, in my mind, probably my favorite Stephen King novel. It's... And it's not even because of the vampire thing. It's because I'm not a huge fan of vampires. Uh, it's more just the the character of the town itself in that novel, and the people that occupy it, and the way he kind of created this whole history behind it, and filled it with these these people, and kind of let them go show you what how their lives are going on while this horrible thing is happening in the dark corners that kind of encroaches on the rest of the populace over time. So that, that was a a huge influence on me when writing devil's Creek. Um, and it, so finding a publisher that got that was imperative. We, we, I had to find somebody who would respect, respect the story and also respect the inspiration behind it. And uh, and it sounds like, I mean, in the case like a story like that, you're talking about the setting in its way being a, a, a character of its Absolutely. own. Absolutely. Uh, the, the town, and that that's I approached that with the story from day one, the town is a character. And, you know, a lot of publishers out there, some of the bigger ones that, that it was pitched to, all wanted me to cut that stuff out. They yeah. Yeah basically remove all the parts that make the town a character they in one instance wanted me to cut out a pivotal chapter that explains uh, certain antagonists motivations in relation to the town which made no sense to me um yeah it's been it was kind of a it was this uphill battle 
until we came until we started talking to Ken. And Ken's like he read it. He, you know, we had a couple of offers on the table and Ken Ken read it and he's like I I want this. I want to publish this. And you know, I at after reviewing all the different offers, I, you know, I went with Ken hands down because I liked what he was doing with his company. I liked the direction. I mean, it says it all in the name, Silver Shamrock. If anybody who's a horror fan knows the significance of that. Uh, and it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed like just a good fit from the start, you know? And uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, but it speaks to their professionalism, I mean, because it shows in their final product. And I'm yeah. confident that'll be the case with your book, too, which will be like my fourth Silver Shamrock experience. But I've not read anything that just wasn't just absolutely stellar, top-notch, you know, um, top-shelf fiction. Yeah. Uh, the thing, one of the things I respect about him is that he's not afraid to take chances. And, you know, he, rec- I mean, he's a, he's a business owner. He's got it, you know, he has his own business outside of Silver Shamrock, so he knows how to run a business, which I think sometimes when it comes to a lot of the publishers in the indie world, especially in, with in recent times with a lot of publishers going under, not being able to pay their authors because they're not managing their funds correctly, getting a publisher who actually knows how to run a business is paramount right now in my opinion anyway i would think so yeah yeah and so once i understood that i mean i did my homework on the guy i was you know doing background checks i hired a private eye no i'm kidding (laughs) uh uh, no i did ask around and everybody i talked to who had met him at StokerCon last year you know all said the same thing he's a great guy and he seems like he knows what he's doing he's got a vision and he's he's going all in on this not because he's looking to make money, but because he's passionate about the fiction. And, and that's so important, and I feel like that's so lacking in, in the industry right now. Well, that's what I was going to say, is he's, he's not half-assed about it. I mean, I deal with hundreds of publishers, and not to diss them, but the vast majority of them publish the book and walk away. Yep. You know, um, uh-huh. Ken is extremely proactive in pushing your work out there and promoting it and getting people to read it and getting the word of mouth going. You know, he's extremely savvy that way. And his work ethic seems to be just over the top, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, again, that comes from knowing how to run a business. Yeah. Yeah. You, but yeah, you can't run a successful business if you're not someone who's willing to kill himself working. Yeah. Which so, is why I don't run a business. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've tried and failed to run a business. <laughs> I have had that experience too, more than I, more than once, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd rather just not go there. Uh uh-huh. same here that's as far as i'm going with that. all right so anyway that's that's been my experience with silver shamrock it has been i have nothing but great things to say uh i've been paid on time per our contracts which is also great which i know uh you know in the light of the the cheesing debacle uh that's been you know definitely a 
a huge talking point, I think, is, you know, well, how solvent are they? <laughs> are you getting your payments on time? And Which I feel like it's the last thing you should have to be concerned about. But you do. Yeah. Because they're just going to, they're going to be those top notch outfits that really treat people good. And then there are going to be people, I mean, some of them, like G Zine always did, it seemed like early on. Um, Dark Fuse always did. But in the end, they just didn't manage things right. And they screwed a lot of people. You know? And so you do need to be diligent in that area, you know, probably not go so far as the private investigator and background check. No, (laughs) (laughs) don't make my mistakes, kids. (laughs) I think it uh, I think it helps, too, if if you're agented, that makes a difference because they tend to know a little bit. Uh, Yeah, Uh, my agent has been extremely helpful in this process. Uh, She's. Been, definitely been a voice of reason in all this madness and there's definitely a lot of madness in it <laughs> so um devil's creek that was a long haul for you wasn't it it was well yes and no i would say i probably spent longer trying to get it published than i did writing it uh and from start to finish Okay, maybe I misspoke. Let's go back a little farther. Uh, So I started jotting down notes for Devil's Creek, what would become Devil's Creek in 2007. I made several attempts to write it. uh, Never really found the right voice for it. I, I also just don't think I was ready uh, to, to write as a writer to work on it. I still had a lot to, to learn. And um, the whole thing just seemed really daunting to me because of the, every time I thought about it, it was there was like all this different stuff I wanted to do with it. And it just kept building and building and building, and I got overwhelmed by it. Um, there is actually some lo- a lost draft. I, I can't find it. Uh, I've searched, searched uh, <laughs> over and over again for this uh, notebook. I actually it was handwritten. There were three scenes, only one of which, a version of one of them, ended up in the final the final book. Uh, and I had to completely write it from scratch again. Uh, so there's that. Um, I tried again in 2014. Uh, some of the what happens toward the end of toward the end of part two I uh, actually started with that again I kept uh, hitting a wall couldn't decide you know okay so this is gonna happen in two different time periods and do I start with this do I start here you know and all these questions and kept going in circles and I finally just set it aside worked on something else and so 2017 rolls around after uh, final reconciliation was published uh i you know hooked up with my agent and you know we were kind of talking about the future what projects i had in the works and everything and i told her that you know i I pitched her two ideas one of which was devil's creek she said let's run with that one first so i said okay i'll have you i'll have you a, a draft in a year 
And at the time, I was going through some pretty, you know, tough stuff with my day job, a uh, pretty hostile work environment. And I and many others were getting screwed over uh, by the man. And um, Devil's Creek was kind of my my Hail Mary in a way, in a lot of ways. It was, you know, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to bring my A game every time I sit down to write. And I'm going to write something that's going to get me the fuck out of here. So I had that mentality. It's like I, I, I went into it every day I worked on it with this, you know, let's, let's fucking do this, you know, mindset. And I'm not saying that I don't have that intention whenever I sit down to work on anything else. It's more like the the feeling was, okay, this one needs to count. And I worked on it, chipped away at it. I guess it was like two months in, I hit 50,000 words. Uh, maybe another three or four months to hit 100,000 words. 120,000 by the end of the year. And then March 2018, I finished the first draft at 176,000. Wow. Yeah. Um, 10 months total. You kind of approach it with the same passion, but a little bit more fire and fury behind it. Yeah, I, I would say so. It also helped that, like, Devil's Creek takes place in a in a town called Stafford, Kentucky. Uh, Stafford exists, but by a different name, and it's the town I grew up in, uh, Corbin, Kentucky. Um, Corbin's got a pretty dark you know, past, and I wanted to address that in the book. It was also where I grew up. I, I knew all the side streets. I knew the hangouts. I knew, you know... I, very intimate knowledge of this tiny little town. It's got like, I think there's a population of maybe 8,000 people. It's very small. And, you know, I, I lived there for 20 years. So kind of, uh, kind of easier to personify a set if you're intimately familiar with it. huh? Yeah. I mean, it, it uh, definitely made it easier uh, especially when it came to geography. Uh, ultimately, I changed the name of the town not because I was worried about backlash, but because I had taken some liberties with some of the placement of things geographically. And it just felt like, I, okay, if I'm going to do this and still have some of the real places in here, it's kind of this weird amalgamation of fiction and reality then I need to make it my own and not just you know let it be this set in this real place with fictional characters uh, on that note I mean Devil's Creek does exist it's a real place um, Devil's Creek Road if you the first page of the book is a photograph of the actual Devil's Creek Road sign that my wife took um and just That's growing awesome. up, it was this it was this this place that I grew up hearing about, 
it was, you know, you hear about kids going out to party. They saw some weird shit. There was this, you know, there really was a church out there. Uh, I do know that. And it did at some point burn to the ground. And all that's left now is like the foundation and stuff. And there's like a, a roundabout where you can just, you basically drive all the way out on this road. It just dead ends in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like I'll, <laughs> after we're done here, Shane, I'll send you the Google maps, uh, thing that i the pin that i have saved yeah I really how like this, far yeah. out in the middle of nowhere this place really is and this road just goes all the way out snaking all the way up into this national forest and who the fuck thought it would be a great idea to put a church out there is beyond me <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's seriously in the middle of you know on fuck nowhere that's kind of creepy when you think about it yeah right <laughs> and so like, growing up uh, i heard all these stories about you know yeah there was like this sat this satanist church this desecrated church out there satanists burned it to the ground and shit because you know i grew up in the you know i i, I was you know born in 83 so you know i'm coming of age you know in the early 90s and shit when the satanic panic's really you know hitting its it's zenith and you know you're hearing about satanists desecrated the church they were doing black masses out there they burned it down also heard that some townspeople burned it down and the thing about this is that there's never a straight story there's never consistency it's always well i heard this well i heard this and even like looking into it googling it and everything I could not find a consistent story about what happened, except for the fact that there used to be a church there and it burned down. Why did it burn down? How did it burn down? I don't know. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, yeah. So, uh, there's all this legend around it because no one knows the true story or anyone who did know was, you know, they passed on because it's so long ago. Um, and all I knew about the place is what I'd heard and that it was a popular party place. And, you know, teenagers will go out there and, you know, get stoned or high or whatever and drink and whatnot. And they would talk about how you could if you drove your car around the foundation at midnight, your car would shut off. Because, of course, it would. And uh, <laughs> supposedly there were these dark shadows figures in in the at the tree line because it was like a clearing. And um, it, it was just stupid, hokey bullshit. OK, <laughs> just hokey bullshit. And what has always fascinated me about it is uh, comes from a conversation I had with my mom. I was a teenager. I think I was 17 at the time. So I have my driver's license. I was telling her about all this weird shit I heard, you know, over the years. And she told me, if I hear of you ever going out there, you'll be grounded until you go to college. <laughs> and I, so I pushed her because that's in my nature to question authority. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I said, so explain to me why you don't want me to go there. Just give me a give me a reason. And she got really serious 
And she said, because there's nothing there. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? There's nothing there. She's like, it, it, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no wind. There's no sound. There's no insects chirping. You don't hear birds. It's a void. That's now I want to go. Which is really fucking ominous to a 17 year old. <laughs> so that stuck with me. It's a void. And the end result is, you know, nearly 20 years later, this massive story about this, you know, church back in the 80s that got burned down because there was a cult, you know, practicing some dark ritual shit out in the woods. And, you know, kind of the the repercussions of how that's felt down through the generations to present day. And so that's kind of the, the origin story. Although there is another aspect to it. That's I'm actually getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. Uh, This, so this really happened uh, on several occasions. So there's a, there's a dream sequence in the book that the main character has uh, for the readers out there who are listening that the whole story revolves around um, one of the children who survived the, the uh, what happens at the, at the church in the eighties. He grows up and uh, raised by his grandmother and he comes home and discovers that, you know, there were some things that she kept from him when he was when he was a child. So uh, anybody who knows me or has read my short stuff knows that I was pretty, pretty close to my great grandmother. Uh, I wrote a story about her and a little thing is called Saving Granny from the Devil. Um, you know, she raised me for, you know, several years after my parents got divorced and my mom's getting on her feet. So I had this dream when I was in college and this is really one of the things that kind of sparked the whole, you know, taking the legend of devil's Creek and meshing it with this dynamic between grandmother and grandson. I had this dream, one of these vivid fucking dreams where you can smell things, everything you feel, you know, the heat or the cold, the wind, you know, it's hyper realistic. You have your scent, all your senses are firing in this dream, you know, very vivid. And basically the scene in the, in the book is almost a exact play by play of the real dream I had. Uh, where she took me, we were going to church, I was a little kid, we're driving her green Cadillac out into the middle of fucking nowhere, and she leads me across this clearing, up this hill to this church. But when we go inside, there's nothing there but a dirt floor, and there's a hole in the ground, and there's steps leading down. And so we go down there, and there's all these people like sitting around they're like meditating or humming or something and they're kind of swaying in time as this preacher with a bag over his head is speaking in a language I can't understand. 
I'm just going to stop there because I don't want to spoil it. Uh, <laughs> but that, like, I had that dream several times. Uh, and it just seemed kind of like, I don't know. It, I don't, it just, I came out of nowhere. It, um, you know, this is even before my, my great-grandmother had passed on. Uh, I had that dream sophomore year of college, I think. So 2003, 2004. She didn't pass away till 2005. Uh, Yeah, it it just kind of, it was one of those things that just kind of comes out of the ether. And it's one of the, it's strong enough and it's vivid enough that you just tuck it away for later for whatever reason. You never forget it. And then at some point later on, it kind of comes together with some other idea. And everything just clicks. It's like a, you know, it's that, it's that stereotypical light bulb moment. You know, it just switches yeah. on, and everything comes together, and it's aha. And I think kind of, especially with with dreams, and I know this might sound a little bit odd of me to say, but if you remember a dream vividly and it's a, one of those more lucid ones like that I've always felt like that's there's a reason why you should remember it there's a reason why it's important to you yeah I, I can I can agree with that yeah. and uh, in this case it's important to me because it sounds scary as fuck <laughs> oh god well, try being the one who dreamed it man it was fucking terrifying <laughs> I bet uh, so I don't even remember what the question was. I just went off on a tangent about the real Devil's Creek. <laughs> ah, we just started talking about Devil's Creek, so we're yeah. perfectly on track. So, yeah, the book uh, comes out in June. It's been a long journey getting to this point. As I said, you know, we it went through several phases of edits. It had three different editors. Uh, the editor that I, you know, my editor that I work with for everything I do, Amelia Bennett. Uh, it was edited by one of my agents, uh, you know, fellow agents at her at her agency, uh, Renee. Uh, my God, I'm going to forget her name. <laughs> it happens. Uh, Renee Fountain. Um, you know, she went through it, and that was where most of the, the major cuts happened because she was, you know, trying to pitch it to the big five and big five's telling her it's still too damn long. And I'm telling them go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the changes that we did make, they were, you know, they were good changes. I felt good about them. Um, just to kind of rein it in a little bit because it was unwieldy. Um, like I said, I still have those that stuff. It, you know, if there's ever like a definitive author's text or whatever, maybe they'll see the light of day in the future. Uh, and then Kenneth Kane, you know, did another thorough edit on top of that. Once it got in the into Silver Shamrock's hands, and here we are. Um, so uh, Greg Chapman, uh, also an author, he's also uh, an artist kind of a funny story uh he just did a a random painting of this church on a hillside with a backdrop of a forest and it was frank errington uh who had read an earlier draft of the book Uh, this is going back to 2018 uh frank 
you know, he passed away last year. Yeah, he was a good uh, guy. He was a great guy. Um, he, uh, you know, called that to my attention. He's like, this is Devil's Creek. <laughs> and I went, I'm like, holy shit, you're right, it is. So I, I bought the art from Greg because uh, he was awesome and sold it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid he was telling me to go go to hell, but no, he sold it to me. Uh, thank you, Greg. Um, and then, because I'm also a you know a graphic designer, uh, freelance graphic designer, I took it into Photoshop and made some modifications, darkened it up a little bit, made it look grungier, uh, put some text on there, and that's you know that's how the cover came to be. Um, that's a killer cover, killer well, artwork, and. And the stress look is kind of, I just really like that look with a book. I'm seeing more books like that, and they just really appeal to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, 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 you know, like you said, the stress cover, the whole retro used paperback look. I think exactly. the uh, first time I ever saw that was uh, James Newman's The Wicked that Shock Totem put out. And I, I just fell in love with that cover. It's a great book, too. Um uh, you know, James Newman is a. I actually owe a debt of gratitude to him because it was he who uh, suggested Silver Shamrock. Yeah, it was his book. His book, his and Mark Steensland's book was the first Silver Shamrock book I read. Uh huh. Anyway, sorry. Mm, it's fine. Um. So, you know, that's kind of funny that. You know, Jim's cover inspired me with this cover, and Jim was the one who ended up, you know, pushing me in this direction to to Silver Shamrock, and here we are. Uh, a lot of interesting synchronicities <laughs> for all the uh, the fans of Hellier out there. I'm one. <laughs> I confess. I confess. <laughs> like every time they say synchronicity, take a drink. Exactly. You get <laughs> fucked up quick. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's that's Devil's Creek in a nutshell. Um, I can't wait for people to to read it. I know it's in the wild with reviewers and whatnot. Uh, I'm excited to hear what people think. Um, I know the the promotional machine is gonna take off, start taking off here in the next, uh, well, probably next month, uh, leading up to the release in June. And I'm not sure what's, uh, I know I'm going to be at Nikon, uh, Northeastern Horror Writers Conference, for the, those who don't know, and uh, Scares That Care uh, in August. Nikon in July, uh, Scares in August. And I'm going to try and get some uh, some local buzz going. I'm going to try and get down to Kentucky for a signing, possibly. Although I don't know how well received the book will be there. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I well I just have a strong 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 uh, feeling that <laughs> the folks of my hometown will not be pleased <laughs> that's funny um, the, which is probably which also makes it probably a good idea to have changed the name of the town so that the purists don't just yeah, it's fine it, it's Corbin Kentucky <laughs> folks yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's Jeez, on I-75 at zip code 40701, <laughs> 606 area code. 
<laughs> it's kind of funny too talking to you about it because it's like okay everything about this book is creepy like even the picture your wife took of this exit sign out what in what looks like the middle of fucking nowhere to devil's creek like it's uh, devil's <laughs> creek is seriously in uh daniel boone national forest i mean it's <laughs> It is like the last road until you get to the turnoff for Cumberland Falls National Park, which is this giant, you know, waterfall on the Cumberland River. And I mean, it's really isolated. It's, you know, it's you're out in the forest and there are people who live out there like their whole lives. <laughs> yeah. Like there are people like that here in Oregon too, and I I can't fathom it. Well, <laughs> I'm too much of a city kid for that. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the sticks too, but not the stick sticks. Yeah, know? that's uh, yeah, I I've always lived in cities. I run all over mountains in my spare time, or I did when I was younger. But I always go home to the city. <laughs> I like living near a city, but not in the city and i like I, the conveniences of being near a city but you know that's just me i think too part a big part of that speaks to our upbringing too it's kind of like you know i grew up in big cities i've never lived anywhere else for the most part and you on the other hand grew up in a small town in kentucky and to us northerners who know absolutely nothing about that experience that just kind of defines you let me end. let me put this in perspective <laughs> the closest mall shopping mall was 80 miles away damn in lexington <laughs> where i went to school so, so you guys did a lot of drugs and stuff huh? <laughs> i i have a lot of friends who did i didn't sure <laughs> <laughs> All right, believe what you want. <laughs> I never inhaled. I'm sticking to my story. <laughs> but our co-host, our new co-host, uh, Laurel Hightower, is also a Kentuckian. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I forget where she said she lives exactly now, but uh, she's there somewhere. So Everywhere and, is somewhere in Kentucky. It's yeah. somewhere, somewhere yonder. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that's what she said too. It's not hard to get to the middle of nowhere from anywhere in Kentucky. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like you either stay near I seventy five or I sixty four. Don't go any farther from you know anywhere else. Just stay on those main highways. <laughs> uh, so yeah, real quick going back to Hellier, it was very interesting. Uh, because I've been to Ashland, I've been to Somerset, I've been, I've been to those places that they were going. Uh, so it's kind of surreal seeing that on on TV. But yeah, I digress. I yeah, but I'm always willing to digress about Hellier. Pretty uh, yeah. fascinating stuff. Compelling. Yeah, it is. Although at the same time, like uh, Taff and. Rich Duncan were making fun of me because like, <laughs> because I was like, oh, man, I loved every single minute of it. I don't believe a fucking word of it, but I loved every single minute of it. it. Like, I, you know, I uh, like you. I'm highly skeptical of that stuff, but it's 
it was a very for me it was more compelling just the the trail that they were kind of following you know it is fascinating and compelling and creepy and you know but yeah i'm just the ultimate skeptic i disbelieve everything until somebody you know shows me a photo of it <laughs> even then i would be <laughs> yeah <skeptic>. exactly <laughs> although i i can just hear taff now making fun of you <laughs> love you john yeah, uh, we. I take every chance I get to trash talk Taff because I love him so much. <laughs> he was also kind of a, a mentor in some ways, uh, going through the the process with Devil's Creek, trying to find a publisher that's a good fit that'll take it on because of the size. Because he had just gone through the same thing with the fearing, you know, trying to you know find a good fit, and he ended up you know going with Gray Matter again. Uh, he was kind of my, I guess, he he was the shoulder I cried on for a few times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of it kind of seems like too though that bigger books are getting just a tiny tiny bit more acceptable again to some publishers. It's like J D. Barker has a 700 plus page horror novel coming out. And uh, George Romero and, uh, damn it, I'm forgetting his name and he's going to kick me in the nuts if he finds out. Anyway, there's a new uh, novel coming out called Undead that is 600 plus pages also wow. that has Romero and someone else uh, um, finished it. The thing, the thing that gets me about publishers being so adverse is that in this age of print-on-demand, you know, it's not like they're worried about having to recoup their costs. No. On, you know, a 20,000 copy print run of an 800 page novel. Yeah, and I still have a lot. I mean, a lot of readers still, anytime they see that a book is, you know, people saw that Wendig's book, Wanderers, was so long and they were ecstatic about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it's not readers. Readers are not averse to a long read, you know. <laughs> It's the publishers who think they know what the readers want. Yeah. Or yeah. trying to dictate what the readers want. That's more yeah. in line with what I think. I'm mm -hmm. trying to dictate. Um, speaking of lines, let's talk about that. Is it scan lines? Scan lines. Yeah, I know nothing about that other than that it's coming from oh. Damp Shores, and it's called scan lines. Well, uh... So, Scanlines is a novella. Um, a few of my early readers who read it said they enjoyed it more than Final Reconciliation, first of all. Uh, it's incredibly dark and bleak. Uh, it's probably, in my opinion, it's probably the bleakest thing I've ever written. Uh, and I can't even say that I was in a dark place when I wrote it. Uh, it was just, just the, the concept kind of call for it to be dark and bleak. Um, so the story, the whole premise is that there's this group, uh, it's kind of like a pseudo coming of age story, uh, about these teenagers growing up in <clears throat> Stafford, Kentucky <laughs> in the nineties. <laughs> yes. It takes place in the same town as Devil's Creek. Um, 
so there is a bit of a you know shared universe thing going on. The Yellow Kings do get mentioned. I should I should point out because another thing I should uh, say is that the town of Stafford, Kentucky, in this shared universe, is the hometown of the guys who were in the band, the final uh, the Yellow Kings, which is what the final reconciliation is about. I thought I recognized that. Yeah. So. In in the final wreck, I never actually named the town. I just said they're from, you know, uh, I don't even know if I said they were specifically from Kentucky, just a place down south. Uh, so anyway, Scanlines is about this group of teenagers uh, growing up in, you know, Nowheresville, Kentucky, in the late 90s. You know, it's the age of dial-up internet and PC games and probably the best decade of music we've ever had, in my opinion. <laughs> in terms of rock and whatnot, I wouldn't say anything else. Um, hip-hop, too, but I digress. Um, and uh, there... What was that? Oh, I just was... I was just going to say I, I agree with you 100%. 80s and 90s were the best era of music, for at least for me, you know. Yeah. But I'm ancient. <laughs> it's okay. I won't, I won't give you a hard time for being chronologically challenged. It's okay. <laughs> Entropy takes us all, Shane. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, so... You know, they're bored on a Friday night and, you know, one one guy, you know, there's uh, two brothers and their their best friend uh, who the story is, you know, it's told from his perspective uh, years later. It's kind of like a, you know, here's what happened to us at this point in time and it's how it's impacting the present. Um, they decide that they're going to download some porn on dial-up internet and if you're a computer nerd like like the, me the good old days the good old days <laughs> of dial-up internet you would hop on uh internet relay chat or mirc and you would uh basically find a chat room where you could queue up downloads where there were people serving you know serving up Videos, music, that was how you got free music before Napster, uh, before Napster changed everything. So this is uh, semi-based on truth, uh, downloading a video and it not being what you think it's going to be. Um, these kids, instead of downloading a video they think is of Jenna Jameson, porn star, uh, turns out to be a suicide video. Oh. Now, it doesn't exact it doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But uh, you know, there were websites back in the '90s like Rotten.com where you could like view autopsy images, some of the nastiest, most disgusting things you'd ever you know conceive, like JFK's autopsy photos. Like you know, I've seen that. I don't yeah, recommend I have to go search that out. Uh, I, I never understood the fascination with those sites. Like well, that. you know, when you're when you're 16 years old and you're fucking bored out of your mind because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> there literally. is that. <laughs> there's that. So, uh, 
the video that was downloaded, you know, and this this really happened, uh, turned out to be the suicide video of Bud Dwyer, who was a Pennsylvania politician. Oh wow! And the uh, fil- the band Filter, their song "Hey Man, Nice Shot" is about that. Uh, it's about the Bud Dwyer suicide, and what had happened was he was accused of. I forget exactly what he was accused of. It was something. It was some kind of scandal. Uh, his political opponents were calling for him to resign. He called a press conference, and there was, you know, live TV press conference in the summertime. Like, so there was kids were out of school. They were watching TV, and, uh, you know, we interrupt this this program for an important local broadcast, and here's Bud Dwyer, and they think that he's going to, you know, he's going to resign from his uh, post. That's not what happened. He uh, went went up in front of, uh, you know, in front of cameras and reporters and, asserted his innocence and he pulled a gun out of a paper bag and blew his brains out on live television. That's just fucking unfathomable to, unfathomable yeah. to me. It's just like, I think that want to say this was like the early eighties when this happened. <laughs> so fast forward, my friends and I think we're getting one thing and end up watching this, you know, this guy in black and white blow his brains out. <laughs> and I mean it's it's fucking brutal dude like the camera even zooms in on his face like what the fuck were they thinking it zooms in on his face you see just gouts of blood pouring out of his nose oh fuck <laughs> and it's you know for as gruesome as you know that sounds I tr- trust me it's far worse when you actually see it and I, I do not recommend anybody watch this thing because no lie it really fucked me up. <laughs> and yet uh, I can see the fascination that a 16 year old would have with something like yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're young. You haven't really grasped the concept of mortality. You think you have, but not really. And so years later, uh, I had, there was a story on pseudopod. I'm, I apologize. The author's name is, slipping my mind but there was a story on pseudopod about four or five years ago called the analog and it was about this guy who's investigating this uh this tape of this girl where this this college kid who was like a amateur you know uh, amateur movie maker in college becomes obsessed with this girl and he starts following her around and filming her and there's something weird about her and she ends up killing herself on camera and he gets investigated and everything it's just it's this quick like 30 20 30 minute story and it's fucking disturbing as hell and it, it that story has always stayed with me so uh, I was invited to submit uh, somewhere back at the beginning of the year, uh, beginning of 2019. They were looking for long fiction. So I sort of started writing this story about, you know, 
this incident when I was a teenager, just downloading one video and it being something else. So Scan Lines is about a group of teenagers who download the video by, by mistake. It's of a politician, not Bud Dwyer. I changed the names and everything out of respect for him uh, and his family. And basically they see it. It's, you know, it messes them up. It's disturbing. You know, life goes on. But then they start seeing his face in other places and not just like on the TV screen. They start seeing his face on people they know. Oh, fuck. So and, is it, has this been optioned for film yet? Because it certainly should be. <laughs> oh, no, unfortunately. <laughs> the, the rights are for sale, potential filmmakers. <laughs> I will entertain. I and my agent will entertain offers. Um, so I, the original uh, place where I was going to send it to that fell through, Dim Shores was taking uh, submissions. And I figured, well, what the fuck? Why not? So I sent the story off to them thinking that I had no fucking chance whatsoever because it was their first time doing an open call and it was high profile. Everybody was submitting to this thing. And I was one of the one of the only two that got accepted. Right on. So yeah, that was a nice way to cap off the year um so it's uh pre-orders there's going to be the chat book is going to be limited to 150 copies uh dim shores only does like really short limited runs um it pre-orders start on february 1st and the book will be published i believe in march um so i just sent back the the final edits to sam at Dim Shores a day or two ago. He said he was going to get started on working on the layout. Uh, I designed the cover for it. Uh, I know the front cover's been revealed. I don't think the back has yet, but it's got the retro VHS kind of nice. you know, feel to it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's scan lines. It's an incredibly dark story. Like I said, you know, given the... The content, the subject matter of it, it's an incredibly bleak story. Um, uh, for anybody listening, just as an aside, if Todd Kiesling tells you that a story is incredibly bleak, it means that it's really fucking bleak. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong, folks. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's a downer, man. It's a it's a downer. <laughs> but you'll have time. <laughs> I was gonna say, but we'll have a good time with it anyway, because that's the kind of freaks we all are. But yeah. <laughs> um, and Dim Shores, man, I've read a ton of stuff from them, um, and I've never read anything that wasn't just stellar. Those guys, uh, you know, given the um, financial output. Um, they put a lot into those books. Yeah, uh, I when I saw that they were doing a an open call for the first time, I, I I had to. I'm like, well, I'll regret it if I don't. So here we are. Uh, yep. You got to try, or you'll never get published. <laughs> yeah. 
so that's that's coming out in March, and then I get the rights back six months after that, and uh, I kept the rights to the cover. So uh, my agent is you know chomping at the bit to get her hands on it once the rights revert, and then uh, I know she wants to shop it around. So we'll see. Cool. Cool. Uh, I'm you know I'm sure it'll land with a small indie publisher and it'll be out in trade paperback at some point in the future, probably next year. Um, I'm trying to keep as much, like as much of a cushion around the devil's Creek release as possible because that's going to be the, the big focus for me this year. But, um, you know, I do have some shorter stuff coming out in a couple of anthologies, uh, this year as well. Uh, I've got a story, Happy Pills, which is coming out in Arterial Bloom from Crystal Lake that uh, Mercedes Yardley is editing. Yeah, they uh, published the first thing I ever read by you. Really? Yeah, it was in Writers on Writing Volume oh, 1. Oh, yeah. That was the first thing of mine they ever published. Like Facing Your Fears in Fiction or Through Fiction, I forget now. Yeah. But yeah. So, anyway, just an aside, sorry. It's okay. You triggered memory. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I have a story coming out in Silver Shamrock's next anthology, uh, Midnight in the Pentagram. Uh, that story is called The Gods of Our Fathers. I wrote it a few years ago went during a break from Devil's Creek. So, it kind of takes place in the same universe, uh, kind of. Um, but, a girl who's abused by her father and sometimes you want to get back at your dad you got to sacrifice a goat <laughs> that's what i always say i mean that's i don't know what kind of childhood you had but <laughs> um so yeah that's that's coming out for silver shamrock i also have um uh, a story that I'm extremely proud of coming out in, I believe it's going to be the first quarter issue of Vastarian. Uh, that's uh, Grimscribe Press's uh, Legati-themed uh, journal, uh, Thomas Legati, uh, specifically. Yeah, and it's and killer. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, John Paget is the editor. Uh, those who aren't familiar with John, he's a fantastic guy. He wrote one of the best weird fiction collections I've ever read, and that was The Secret of Ventriloquism. Um, I had the uh, good fortune of being able to meet John in Philly back in May, I think it was. Uh, he was flown up because he lives down in New Orleans. Uh, they Cadaver Records flew him in for like a one-night uh event where he did a live reading with like a, a live music accompaniment reading of Thomas Ligotti's The Bungalow House. Oh. And then after The Bungalow House, he read his own story, The Secret of uh, oh, excuse me, 20 Simple Steps to, uh, to Ventriloquism. And watching him perform that was fascinating because he's actually a ventriloquist. He can actually do that stuff and he did some things with his voice that i didn't know was possible <laughs> and it, there was no filming allowed so you know i wish 
I, I wish I had a video of it just so I could watch it again. Uh, anyway, yeah, so he's the editor for Vastarian, uh, really great literary journal. Um, the issue that they just released uh, has a story called Pavement by Robert Wilson, who is the uh, editor and co-owner of Nightscape Press. Fantastic story. Um, really, really eerie as hell, too. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a story coming out in Vastarian. So I keep going off on a tangent. Uh, the story is called We've All Gone to the Magic Show. It was inspired by uh, Thomas Ligotti's story, The Town Manager. And it was my first uh, sale at professional rates. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Really cool. proud of that one. Uh, I immortalized some friends. John Taft's in that. <laughs> Brian Kirk is in that. Uh, my friend Richard Wood and his wife Tina are in that. Um, it's a, All I'll say about the story is that it deals with mannequins. That's all. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there, I, you, there you go, motherfuckers. That's all I'm telling you. <laughs> that's all I'm giving you. You just have to go fucking buy the issue when it comes out in the spring. Um, but uh, I will definitely be doing I read that thing every chance I get. Um, and some uh, repeatedly. I need the newest issue. Newest especially, issue. especially knowing that uh, uh, Bob's in it. He's a good writer, good guy. He um, was, I believe, see you keep bringing up all these synchronicities for me. Um, he was, I believe, the first publisher to ever contact me and offer me an arc, which back then I thought, man, I was like a movie star or something. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I've been looking at your picture for the last hour. You got sunglasses on, obviously. <laughs> movie star. I must be. A, <laughs> couldn't have been a hangover that day. <laughs> yeah, Bob's a good guy. He's a great writer. Um, and it just maybe he he'll kick my ass if I don't mention. Uh, Weird Whispers number one. Uh, I don't know if the whole, all the stories have been released on the Weird Whispers website. Weird Whispers is a, I think, quarterly digest that Nightscape's putting out. And uh, I've got a story in the first issue along with uh, Kurt Favre and Gwendolyn Keist. Keist? I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, I will. I will, so that you don't have to feel totally bad. I'll massacre it too. I always say kissed. So okay. So one of us is wrong, or both of us are wrong. She's probably when she, if she hears this, she'll go, "Those dumb fuckers." Yeah, she's probably rolling her eyes at us and just being like, "Well, never talking to this asshole." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I love the Rust Maidens, by the way. It's a fantastic novel. She's a super, super, super talented author. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I listened to the Rust Maidens in audio uh, during my commute uh, over the course of a week, and I I loved it, every minute of it. I thought it was so original, and the writing was so poetic. So you're, uh, you listened to it over your commute, so you're still commuting to that 
lame ass day job? Uh, no, I got that <laughs> lame ass. The lame ass day job uh, laid me off last February, and oh, I, I got hired at a you know significantly less lame day job in September. Down. The only downside is is that it's about an hour away from where I live. Uh, so. Yeah, so I'm I'm in the car two hours a day. Yeah, and I used to do that shit when I was when I was a web developer, I used to drive back and forth between Salem and Portland, and it was a drag. Well, Audible makes it a bit you know, a bit more bearable, and uh, I've listened to a lot of books that I've had on my shelves that I just haven't had time to read. Uh, I just uh, finished. Baron, Lord Baron's Blood Standard, which was excellent. Oh man, uh, yeah, killer book. Uh, great job in the narration in that one. The audio version was really good. Uh, I listened. I actually listened to because it had been a long time since I'd read it. I listened to the audio edition of Ted Klein's The Ceremonies, which was like thirty hours long. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. And I, uh, ha- I have a first edition of that book sitting on my shelf that I have never cracked. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, it's a good book. Um, yeah, and there's just it's like the the knowledge that I'll be dead long before I ever read everyone I want to read is a shame. <laughs> yeah. I have that's the thing, man. Like once you kinda get into the industry and you start going to conferences or you become a reviewer or whatnot, you just you accumulate so many books. Uh yeah, it's like when my wife my wife goes with me to the to the conferences and between the two of us we accumulate so many books and I feel bad because like some of them I just know I'm never gonna get to I know I'm the same boat it's like I I receive uh, sometimes countless numbers of books in a month you know either that I bought or ordered or that someone just sent to me or whatever the case may be however they come to me and I'm the same way it's like okay I love all my books um, some of you will get buried with me so I have time to read you <laughs> <laughs> nice what are you going to do when your eyes rot out right <laughs> well that's what that's what audible's for right <laughs> exactly <laughs> So how's the illustration business going? Uh, it's slow. I mean, it's really, it's really only when I have time for it. Right. Uh, like if I, need a, if I need a break, for example, like I took a break in November from uh, working on the last monochrome novel. And did some, you know, did some freelance work because sometimes I just need to stretch a different part of my brain. Uh, you know, primarily I, I started doing it, you know, freelancing it when I got laid off just to get, you know, get a little extra income coming in uh, while I was, you know, waiting for the unemployment checks to arrive. Right. And, uh you know, it, it was going pretty well. I mean, a lot of a lot of the work I did was actually interior formatting. Um, it's just a very 
you know, I, I enjoy doing it partially because I think there is a definite lacking of good formatting in the indie world. Um, I know there was a big debate recently on Twitter about should you publish if you can't afford this service or this service or this service, da 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 And, you know, I'm kind of torn on that because, you know, once upon a time, you know, I was an indie author self-publishing stuff many years ago, and I had to make do with what I had available to me. Yeah, it's a big catch-22. Yeah, at the same time, it's like, you know, I, I know what it's like to, you know, have to make a decision between paying this bill or getting this thing that I really, really want. You know, I've, I've been there for far too many years. Yeah, uh, me too. And uh, so I get it. At the same time, I feel like the lack of, you know, quality control in some respects is can at times bring the whole thing, lower the whole thing for everybody. Uh, you know, and I, I, I see that with a big, big asterisk because I'm sure that people are going to lambast me for saying that, but I feel um, like it's it kind of goes back to okay, so you're self-publishing, you are the publisher, and you need to act like it. <laughs> you know, it goes back to you know treat you know understanding that okay, I you know I know that you are an artist and it's for the love of the the art, man. I get it, but you're when you don that publisher cap, you're not just an artist anymore. No. You're a fucking business person. <laughs> yep. You're a business person. You're a producer. You suddenly... Uh -huh. Yep. <laughs> and we're now throwing your name into a very big pond of the industry. And, you know, there are certain standards. I mean, you got to, you know, you need a good quality cover. You need quality formatting. You need these things. You need quality editing. And... It's expensive to get that stuff. It is very costly. The upside is is that you also have a whole market of of content creators who do these things, offer these services, that are working with you know at at independent level. They're working with these authors who they know can't afford to pay a lump sum. And they work with you. I mean, my my editor, Amelia, I mean, she works with me. I still owe her for Devil's Creek. I'm slowly paying her back. Because, you know, if she were to bill me up front, that would be like two grand. And, yeah, and, and anybody who thinks that that's something that an author just easily swings has no idea what they're yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I mean, when I self-published my second novel back in 2012, between editing and formatting it and everything, I, I sunk a little over $2,000 into that. And I didn't make back a fraction of it. Yeah, that's, and the, that, that's the big risk with the self-publishing route. That is, is that. The big risk. That's absolutely the big risk. Yeah. And that's where that love for the art comes in. <laughs> uh, you know, how badly do you want it? And... So I would say that there are for the the folks out there who are saying that, you know, they can't afford to do these things. So they're just going to do the best they can. You, you know, you can do that. Nobody's saying you you can't. I'm saying that maybe you should reconsider. And there are definitely options for you out there. There are plenty of artists and editors who are willing to work with you 
at you know making progress payments making you know maybe right. scheduling out you know every month you pay x amount of dollars and treat it like a monthly bill as opposed to a lump sum you know because they're at the end of the day i mean they're in the same boat um yeah absolutely and it's kind of uh i mean if you have to do it yourself i kind of feel like you know keep the words simple in your mind if you don't mm-hmm. know what you're doing um but uh it's sad to say you know it's like i would like to say of myself i'd never judge a book by its cover but i'd be lying through my teeth if i said that i absolutely and, uh, judge a book by its cover uh but even more so when i crack that book if it's not meticulously edited it doesn't have to be 100 percent perfect but it better not fucking annoy me yeah. <laughs> you know? that's the thing is i think it's overlooked is when it comes to the formatting a lot of people don't take into account the ease of reading it like i've seen some books that are like you know huge font double spaced it's like they just copied and pasted the word document into you know into the yeah. book they just exported it to pdf and sent it to the printer and here we go Ta-da, it's a book you know there's more to it than that you know i've seen books that don't have justified margins for god's sakes uh, yeah, I've or seen some pretty hideous production. Yeah, <laughs> or there's there's no consistency, or you know, some title headings might be bigger than others, or here's you know a blank page with headers and footers on it. <laughs> yeah, and it's or like one I just tried to read recently that I was really looking forward to. I won't name and shame, but uh, it was like it'd be a paragraph of normal font. And a paragraph of a font so fucking small you couldn't read it. And then a paragraph of normal font and back to the small again. (laughs) And it was just over and over and over and over again. And I think I got four pages into that and started paging through it looking to see if it stayed that way (laughs) and then just walked away from it. (laughs) I should, you know, I should stipulate on this whole side of the con, you know, aspect of the conversation we're having. It's like, I'm not speaking from a place of snobbery or if i if i seem like i'm coming across that way i totally don't mean to i'm speaking from a place of experience because i've been there i've made those mistakes and i know what the cost is for making those mistakes right and that's people get mad at me about my opinions on that sometimes but the fact is is that i look at it from the point of view of a reader and yeah. I'm honest with myself, and I'm honest with the authors I deal with. And as a reader, it doesn't work. Like I, something that I did with my approach when I was still doing 100% independent, you know, self-published stuff. Mm-hmm. When it came to the presentation of the product, because you know, newsflash, kids. Once you start publishing your own stuff, your story is not just art anymore. It's a fucking product. That's right. <laughs> uh, it It's all about the presentation. And I wanted my books to look, you know, no different than any other book you might find on a shelf in a Barnes & Noble. Not to say that I didn't want it to stand out. It did. But I mean in terms of the quality of it. Right. 
You know, I wanted a good cover. I wanted a compelling cover. I wanted interior that looked like it had been done by some, you know, a big five publisher. And all of that stuff can be done yourself in Microsoft Word, no less, if you take the time to learn how. Yep. And I received, you know, there are some guys who can format a Word document so well I can pull it into my Calibre software and convert it to a Kindle file, and it'll be perfect. Yeah. Without uh, having to do anything. <laughs> I mean, when it came to doing the formatting for Devil's Creek, which, you know, mm-hmm. I, I did. I did all that because I wanted to. Uh, I did all that in Microsoft Word. That's um, interesting. I do all of my interior formatting in Microsoft Word because that's how I learned to do it. Uh, so it might take me a little bit longer than people with InDesign, but again, it's how I learned and that's what I have available to me. And uh, the thing is, is a lot of the converters out there um, understand the XML language behind a Microsoft doc and will, you know, will emulate it when they convert. Yeah, I mean it. It may not be a hundred percent clean. There, I've never had a mic, uh, a word file come come out entirely clean. It's had some kind of garbage associated with it. Yeah, uh, that's um, just the nature of these with a Microsoft product. I think. As a, yeah, as a web developer, Microsoft was always my worst fucking nightmare. <laughs> you know, it's like someone would come in you know you said you're interview, interviewing someone for a job or something oh yeah i'm I'm really good at building websites and blah 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 i've been using front page for three years it's like yeah and oh wow next <laughs> that, that's a name i haven't heard in a long time <laughs> yeah uh, there's a reason that product died <laughs> so circling back around i'm gonna step off my soapbox about the whole Sorry. design thing no it's okay uh i i went off on a tangent that time Um, as far as the design stuff goes I mean I do have some active projects I'm I'm working on I'm also doing the design work for Arterial Bloom oh nice Uh, I should point out that my story was accepted fair and square before I ever came on board to do the design stuff for Arterial Bloom (laughs) before anybody decides to chime in about that don't judge yeah (laughs) Um, I uh Waiting on some files coming from, from uh, my pal Chuck Buddha. I'm doing the uh, design interior work for his. Uh, I did the interior work for the re-releases of his um, his Gushers series, his Son of Erp series, and his um, uh, debt collector series. Uh, Chuck pretty much kept food on my table for like two months after I got laid off. <laughs> um, so thank you, Chuck. Uh, yeah, but he, uh, he's got a fourth book in the son of Earp series coming out that he's hired me to, to work on. Um, I also have a project in the works. I'm working with, uh, Kenneth Kane on a very special project. Uh, in relation to uh, Frank Arrington. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, that's all I'm going to say. I probably said too much already. He'll probably call me tomorrow freaking out or something. <laughs> uh, so, what? Well, then I won't dig any further on that one. 
<laughs> yeah, let's let that one go until that gets announced official. Uh, um, yeah, speaking of official, too, is this is the unofficial Ink Heist podcast with Todd Kiesling. And I want to make sure that you're aware of that because when we're getting closer to Devil's Creek releasing, we're going to want to have you back. Absolutely. Because uh, we, we are going to, by then we will have all three read the book. And we are definitely going to have things to talk about. I'm certain of it. I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we would could spend an entire episode on just going through all the different little things in that book of, well, this is true. This really happened. This didn't happen. This place exists. I mean, in the earlier chapters of that book, I went through, I actually used Google Street View. And just went on a tour of my hometown, and there's a there's a couple of scenes where the main character is coming back into town, and he's kind of just driving through to see what's changed because he has time to kill. Uh huh. And that was written entirely with Street View open in the other in the next window. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Um, that's something too. Don't forget to send that Devil's Creek pen to me. Oh I'm yeah, like, definitely really curious about that one um then i think uh unless you have more stuff you want to tell us right this moment i'm probably gonna jump off and go make dinner for my wife and uh well your wife's gonna have to wait a second yep <laughs> uh that's that's just, perfectly fine <laughs> uh, i think pete kale at bloodshot would probably kill me if i didn't at least mention that i've got uh next year after Devil's Creek. Ah, good. I have uh, three books coming out through Bloodshot uh, over the course of 2021. Um, two of them are reprints, my first two novels that I originally self-published. They're part of a trilogy that I never finished. Uh, I'm working on finishing that trilogy now. It's actually the, the third monochrome novel. The monochrome uh, trilogy starts yeah. with a life transparent. Uh-huh. Which and you can then, currently get in paperback for $935.25. Uh, technically, you can still get it on Kindle. It hasn't been taken down because I don't know exactly how to switch that over to Bloodshot without losing all the reviews. Um, but for those who are out there and want to actually read that, I am going to ask you to wait until the re-release comes out because it's a revised edition that uh, is also expanded. Um, one of the things about the Monochrome trilogy is that when I started writing the first book, it was not a trilogy at all. It was a standalone book. Then I wrote a sequel, and when I got to the end of the sequel, I realized, fuck, I have to write a third book, and I really don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there were a lot of decisions that I made intending to clear those up in the third novel, and I kind of got burned out on that whole universe, and that's when I went into other areas, sort of writing little things, and Final Wreck, and the rest is history. So uh, I decided to go back and finish the third book, uh, completely start over, and to do that, uh, I approached Pete Kale at the beginning of last year and said, hey, this is what I have in mind. I want an opportunity to revisit these first two novels and kind of expand them a little bit so that 
there are no more holes in the plot or at least holes that aren't as noticeable. And, uh, he was all for it. So the, uh, end result is a life transparent. It's going to come out early 2021. The re-release of the second book, the liminal man is going to come out sometime in the midpoint, probably over the summer, 2021. And then in the fall winter, 2021 the final novel non-entity is coming out and that will be the end of the monochrome trilogy i'm gonna put a pin in that right now it's the fucking end of the monochrome trilogy you're not writing any more (laughs) stories in that series so (laughs) you know the one good thing about it though is that pete kale's another guy if he's publishing it then it's good so yeah and he's also letting me handle all the design work on it Cool, cool. So I have complete creative control over how it looks. I mean, the, the covers are out there. They've already been uh, revealed. I'm really proud of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm about 30, 34, 35,000 words into the final novel right now. I expect it's going to be around 60 to 70 when it's done. Um, nice. So that takes care of 2021 so i'm gonna what i'm planning on is finishing that book as soon as possible so i can just take the rest of the year off (laughs) i'm lying that's never gonna happen Uh, i was gonna say in your (laughs) dreams (laughs) that's never gonna happen um send me the send me those covers yeah uh, definitely if they've been revealed already and i'll share them around yeah i definitely will uh the nightworms actually did the reveal a couple of weeks ago ah cool i missed it somehow but uh, I'm so fucking busy anymore that. <laughs> All right, man. I miss a lot of stuff. It's it good is. to be. It is. So, speaking of busy, you got to go cook for your lady. Yep, I do. I do. I could talk to you all night long, though, man. This has Likewise, been great. Dude. It's been and... a long time coming. I'm glad we finally have you know set aside some time to chat. Uh, me too. And it's like. Uh, Every now and then here coming up, we're going to be doing this thing with uh, some of our former guests where uh, we'll periodically cold call them during an episode. So if you want to get in on that, just let me know. You have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds like fun. Just make sure it's like before 10 o'clock because my ass will be in bed. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like um, and then, you know, if you if you see one of us calling and you just aren't so inclined, just fucking ignore us. <laughs> you're like what yeah <laughs> what the fuck do you want <laughs> sorry, sorry shane who yeah who? <laughs> i'm Take sorry you have your, the wrong number put me on your do not call list you asshole <laughs> <laughs> click <laughs> on that note yes uh, yeah, let's definitely do this again very soon, man, prior to yes. Devil's Creek coming out. I can't wait to hear what you guys think of the book. I'm really excited for you to finally read it. I'm really excited to finally read it, too. I'm finishing up a beta read, and it is now right behind it now that we've talked about it, and I can't stop thinking about it. Awesome. So uh, I will let you know. All right, man. Thanks All for right, having man. me on. Thanks for being on, and have a great night. You too, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.